2: Welcome to Playful Podcast, your guide into the underground scene where we discover topics on kink and electronic music every week. Don't forget to subscribe to not miss out on our next episode. We're excited to be here today with DJ and producer Cormac. Cormac is known for playing disco, Italo disco and house and known for his closing performances at Bergheim's Panorama Bar and their snacks parties with sets that can go on for over 10 hours. In this conversation, we speak about Cormac's teenage years, denying their queerness and then finding power through the club scene, something that's been a journey and led to them today being sober. As you can hear, this is an episode full of depth. Let's get to it. I am Amanda and this is Playful Podcast. You grew up in North Ireland, mm. which was in the 90s uh, war. yeah. It and was a war zone. Yeah, a war zone, yeah. How, who were you? Like, who was the little, little Cormac?
1: Ah, I guess I, it was quite a stifled um, environment in many ways. Uh, I grew up when there was a lot of sectarianism and people finding an identity within their nationality, whether it was one side or the other side. And that Mm. I couldn't connect to that. I think partly because how I grew up and also just being a queer kid, I wasn't interested in that. I was kind of interested in fantasy things and like music and things that were maybe a bit more escapist. Mm. I would say, who was I as a kid? I was kind of like a flamingo landing in a yard full of chickens. Yeah, Yeah, I think they didn't really.
2: uh, Oh, flamingo. A
1: flamingo. Love I that. think, um it I think they didn't really quite know how to handle me totally as a as a queer kid. It was quite effeminate. Uh, other kids spot that very early
2: that there's something s- that
1: there's something and they know that before you know that, which is strange, so people start kind of othering you or pointing stuff out before you realize and then you know you hear that word. Gay or faggot or queer, and you don't really know what it is, Mm. but you know that it's not good. So there was definitely that period,
2: and especially during the war. Now, how like Mm. did your family, like, were they welcoming you to be who you are, or how was?
1: I feel like you know, having met so many people, I feel like in one level. I'm very lucky to have had the family that I had. you know I was well looked after, I was clothed, I was fed it was it was very great on many ways. Religion was difficult because my parents were quite religious, so being gay wasn't really an option. and um, there were no I guess one of the casualties of civil war is the absence of culture or at least the restriction of culture because you don't have any influx of other people visiting. You know, if you were English, it was kind of difficult to visit or it was a bit scary to visit. Lots Mm. of people would go to visit Southern Ireland, but they wouldn't come to Northern Ireland. So you have this stifled environment with not very much getting in. So there weren't really any great examples of gay men. Um, Certainly not. Yeah, certainly not. Was
2: culture coming in? Mm. Or was it as it was war? Was it like you know, selected culture that got in?
1: I think just no one wanted to come because it was it was kind of life threatening. You know, people were getting blown up at times and shot, and um, because a lot of the debate or the the war was about um, England versus Ireland, if you like, so English people be very careful about coming because the other side might blow them up and it was kind of vice versa it also happened that Irish people going to London for example before my time but kind of 70s 80s you know they were also under suspicion a lot Mm.
2: Um, but but like the what was uh, the films that were yeah like you know was Mm -hmm. it limited that's no, that.
1: no, we, we, had, we had UK TV, so we had the same TV. But you know, at that time in the 80s and 90s, uh, if you were gay and on TV, it was usually as the comedy act. So I think that, I've noticed that actually in culture in general, that the thing that is threatening, one of the first steps that's taken to integrate the threatening thing is to make them seem harmless and and to make them comedy, so very often, like the few gay people that were on TV, were kind of camp, uh, effeminate, almost like slightly satirical send-ups of homosexuality. So it wasn't really. It was still. It was seen as funny, but it was also seen as ridiculous. Mm.
2: Um, yeah, that's not a very nurturing thing to see when you're trying to find your own identity. No. <laughs> like it's very limiting to yeah. to take it because taking yourself serious i feel that's something that also i have been struggling with as a young um teenager mm-hmm. because it's yeah it's very much like either you are uh the person who's like have you have your thoughts organized and you are like fit into the person who's like sitting on the first row in the classroom, blah, yeah. blah, or you're a little bit, like, blah, all over, and then mm. it's like, you know, there's not so many spectras.
1: No, and is so important at that time. Like, you're trying to find it, but it's also a safe space, like, how you identify, and with which group, if there's a group, and, um, yeah, that was, I was, it was very stressful. I, I was pretty stressed at that time. Yeah. Yeah.
2: What, uh, because then you moved to London when you were, l- how old, like 20-something?
1: Yeah, like when I was like 19, 20. 19. I mean, I discovered rave culture in Northern Ireland because one of the great, or one of the few advantages of the terrorism was that the terrorists, um, one one group of terrorists o- discovered rave culture and discovered drug culture, really, and they opened up an illegal rave in the town where I grew up, really randomly. And so I was able to go there under age and ecstasy culture was a real education for me because instead of people asking what religion are you, they were asking like, you know, what have you had? What have you taken? And it was the first time I saw men hug or like look after each other Uh because, uh, yeah, it was it was kind of very tight and restricted before that. So that was already changing things for me. And I guess that's where I was finding a sense of safety Mm. and family within that culture, even though I couldn't really be out at that time. And I wasn't really sure. I was still kind of in denial and a bit of my own homophobia. Ah, really? Yeah, Mm. I think that's... Yeah, at least that was the case for me. I was slightly homophobic.
2: Yeah, I think I've heard that this is Mm. a very... It's a defense mechanism, no?
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, whether you agree with your parents or whether you even like your parents, I think there's like a very natural instinct to want to be cared for by your parents. Yeah. And if you have this sense that something about you is wrong, you want to deny that as a kid, you know, you want to kind of swallow that or push it away um, because it might deny you care. And I think Mm. I can rationalise that now, but I think that's probably how it was. But then, you know, once I started to rave and um, find... I guess, embrace my dreams a bit more and realise that there was going to be a life for me beyond uh, where I was and that, you know, how things were for me wasn't going to be how it's going to be. Um, when,
2: when did you realise
1: I guess when I started to go to raves and I realised that there was this world of music, primarily, and um, community and people hugging and love and fashion and... Um, you know, it felt very kind of cosmopolitan, if you like, and I realized, like, okay, this isn't my time. This time that I've been in, in an all boys school, in a small oh. town, like this is not, this is not how it's going to be for me. That's just something I'm going to leave behind, and and then that really helped because mm. I started to look forward.
2: Because was it then you you moved to London, mm. and there obviously there were so many. The whole club culture was different, mm-hmm. I guess. Or Yeah.
1: I mean, I went to university first in Northern Ireland because that was kind of the path laid out for me. I didn't realize that music could be a job. Although music was very present in our house, I didn't know that could be a job. Like, my mother was really into music, but she was also kind of afraid of it distracting from academia because my parents thought, you know, you have to be academic, you need to go to university. What did you study? I studied psychology.
2: Ah, yeah. Not surprised. No? <laughs> so, I don't know. You feel very okay. aware.
1: Yeah, I don't know.
2: Were you, but that's very interesting though, because when you studied psychology, were mm. you also as aware as you are right now? Were like, you know, mm. like the roots, kind of.
1: No, I think if I have awareness, it's come from trying to get peace of my inner world. Because on one level, growing up like that, you know, On one side of the coin, it made me very defiant and very kind of angry and kind of, fuck you, I'm going to live in my greatness and my fabulousness. But, you know, the negative effects of growing up in that environment of, you know, bullying and repression, you know, I've had to deal with those as well. Like, it wasn't enough just to say... I'm great. I'm going to get on with it. I also had to unpick that stuff, and I think if I have any wisdom, it maybe comes from unpicking that, and it's still a journey. It's still yeah. it's still something that I work on. So if I have anything to share with you, it maybe comes from trying to make my inner world l- more livable and more yeah. more um, happier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that's a fucking journey. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs>
2: because it's like never ending. You fall into, to you think like, I found it. And then life goes on and it's a new new bump yeah. in the road where you're like, no, I didn't. And then like, I found it. I don't know.
1: But you know what? It sounds cheesy, but any kind of suffering, I think, I'll speak from my own experience because mm-hmm. people really fucking suffer in this world. Yeah. You know, I think it's a nuanced thing you some days are good some days are bad but it has the ability to make you more compassionate it can make you really fucking bitter or it can make you more compassionate you might have bitter days but you can also um tap into compassion i think because how did
2: you do that
1: i don't know it's a daily practice i don't always do it <laughs> uh, yeah but
2: you do it like you have you practice it. i do try to practice it how yeah. do you practice that um
1: How do I practice it? I practice it. I'm a meditator.
2: Ah, you are. That was what I was thinking. I think that's a great tool. Not to be. Yeah. Yeah. I. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, I practiced like um, Vedic meditation for many years, but now, yeah, it's kind of the meditation that became TM. TM. Like Transcendental Meditation, Mm -hmm. but I didn't learn it from Transcendental Meditation, so I have no connection with that school of. thought or meditation but from my understanding they took what was known as vedic um, meditation which is as old as yoga and it's a mantra meditation and i've done that for many years but i also practice um, the medabhavna which is a buddhist meditation for compassion
2: wow Mm. how did you find meditation on your like and these, uh, because
1: I was really bitter. <laughs> yeah. Did no, because I was like, you know, that stuff naturally appealed to me because it looked like some kind of answer to living more peacefully in myself. Mm. So I was quite interested in meditation, and I would go sometimes to the Buddha Center in London, and they were teaching so like this
2: m- early. You started.
1: I mean, I was going to the Buddha Center on and off. Yeah, like in my twenties at the Buddhist Center. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't a Buddhist, but I was interested I in it's there. It's very
2: modern of you, is it? Isn't it? It's like what people do now.
1: Yeah, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, I guess so. I've watched that. Um, I've watched that side of things become more popular. Mm-hmm. Like I used to be a yoga teacher, and you were I before
2: everyone else. <laughs> yeah.
1: Us- usually, you. Uh, leave DJing and become a yoga teacher i did the opposite and but you know when i started to practice yoga which isn't that long ago i mean it's you know 20 years ago but um you know you kind of learned everything from books and now it's like super accessible youtube yeah, <laughs> yeah. now you can kind of learn everything on youtube or or access things on on youtube but i was exploring that quite early on i was also partying a lot so like let's get the full picture. That's, yeah, that's like, what I
2: was thinking. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, because we didn't really dig into that. Mm. We 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 left it with the ecstasy at ecstasy But ecstasy park. culture
1: is like at least in the nineties, it was very like there was a slight um, hippie feeling to it. I mean, you would call it the summer of love from like the late eighties, but I wasn't taking ecstasy then. But certainly, there was a slightly hippie thing in in the feeling of it and there was certainly an idea that the future was going to be great yeah in, oh. in the 90s and then you were also
2: fun. like um opening up as a queer person at the same time yeah, you were kind of getting in touch with your essence or yeah you say? and
1: getting to explore that and finding out who I was in the face of that. I mean, it's a common story, but when I went to London and I started to really meet a queer community, I was a bit shocked and a bit disappointed because in many times, it, you know, what was offered to me didn't fit me either. So, like, I wasn't, like, you know, a really muscly fit gym guy and I wasn't, like, I don't know, there was a lot of things about gay culture that just didn't fit me and I ended up in a slightly more kind of punky... I just have to say... Yeah.
2: Because on our way here, yeah. we we're like, I bet Cormac doesn't have any problem getting late. <laughs> uh, really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Just feels like you are like chef's kiss. Oh really? For the yeah. Oh really? Okay, yeah. thanks. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> I
1: mean, yeah, I don't know what to say to that. It's quite, quite flattering. Thank you. Um. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but there I kind of fitted in more with the, uh, you know, I was going to squat parties and I was going to more techno things. And there was a crossover certainly between techno hard house culture in the late 90s in London and kind of more fetishy um, fuck parties and things. So that was, I was really exploring a lot of that when I went to London
2: fun yeah it was How fun you would go d- to
1: clubs and you know you these like big skinheads and I didn't know if they wanted to like kill me or fuck me <laughs> I figured it out yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> perfect yeah. but you know uh, it, there was there was a crossover I mean I see that crossover now happening again you see it um, in many of the clubs I DJ in there's definitely a crossover between fetish culture and fetish aesthetics and and techno
2: yeah yeah, it's happening That's again what we like but it's
1: more mixed now mm. which is great
2: oh please tell me more about this well so I mean
1: at least in my experience it's more mixed because I was going to a lot of clubs where it was predominantly men there were women I used to go to a party in London called fist which was a fetish party sounds um, like <laughs> sounds like it and that was run by a woman by Susie Kruger and she kind of dates back to the Hellfire Club in New York. So she comes from like a legacy of kind of hardcore S&M uh, fetish. And she was running a party in London, but it was still mostly men. And I mean, that's quite an eye-opening experience. And because I had left so much behind and I was trying to explore things, that was kind of my education and when I first got to London. And all of that was engulfed in music. Because it was all within clubs, and I was getting to listen to great music while exploring all of that.
2: Yeah, the 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 thing that uh, that you have been into music your whole life is like so clear, mm. but like when did you start playing yourself?
1: Yeah, well, as I said, I didn't really know. <laughs> this dog is so beautiful. Um, I didn't really know it was could be a job, and then I realized. I mean, I was meeting DJs and. I was really into the music in the clubs we were going to. My friends seemed equally into the music. And then the music changed. So there was this kind of shift in the music into kind of more like big room. I would call it like New York tribal percussive house. And I just wasn't into it. And I started, I would every time we would go out, I would be like complaining. And I noticed that my friends weren't complaining. They Everything else that was going on in the club was enough for them, and it wasn't really enough for me. And then I was just complaining a lot. And then my friend said to me, "Well, shut up! Like, you know, if you think you can do better, why don't you?" And then I said, "Okay, I will." And then you know, in London, everyone asks (laughs) you. Okay,
2: I will. I love it.
1: (laughs) You know, in London, everyone asks you what you do.
2: Oh, uh, ah,
1: way before they ask you your name.
2: It's in. fucking sane mm. this is part of why I was feeling when I came to Berlin like oh, I can yeah. finally breathe it's because more, yeah. people didn't care about what mm. you did it's not even if you ever like I went to this one party and I accidentally asked it, did, it was like two weeks after moving here I was yeah, like yeah. what do you do and it's such
1: a weird question here yes
2: and they were like what do you mean And I was like fuck so I was like do you do like pottery (laughs) and it was such an awkward moment and they were like yeah sure i don't know but isn't it lovely i mean it's so lovely to not be
1: defined by your profession um so then in london you know i was kind of a a club kid a bit ambitious wanting to do something i didn't know what it was going to be and people would say what do you do and i would say i'm a dj and i couldn't mix i couldn't dj but as soon as i started the words came out of my mouth i started to get gigs people would be like, oh, here, DJ here, DJ there. Oh, can you come and DJ here? And I was just thrown in at the deep end. So smart. Uh, Life hack. Yeah. Right? I don't know. It kind of felt like... Maybe
2: not anymore in Berlin. Yeah.
1: but uh, I mean, it kind of felt like it was waiting on me in some way. And then as soon as I said it, it, it came in. And I couldn't mix, but I had records. I'd been collecting records. And so I just took like my favorite records to the club and just played them. I didn't mix. And it seemed to work. And it was around the start of what became kind of Electro Clash, which was kind of this New York, bandy, electronic, very DIY culture. So the fact that it was a bit rough and ready was okay. You know, it kind of, it was okay if it wasn't perfect. It was a bit rough because that was kind of part of the scene somehow. So that, that did me well.
2: Yeah. yeah. And then how, when did you... Uh, go to Berlin the first time, or like experience I've the nightlife com- here.
1: Like I've been in Berlin, I've been coming like it must be like sixteen, seventeen years. So I was coming like with my ex partner and I. We used to come very often, and we would go to snacks. I think we went to the first snacks at Bergheim. I'm actually, I know we did because it was Miss Kitten DJing, and um, I didn't know Miss Kitten then, and I remember my boyfriend and I being in the club and it was just full of men and we were just mesmerized by her like the only (laughs) woman in the room it was like she's mesmerizing and and just a great great music and and that was yeah so we were coming quite often and then I just was coming regularly after that like uh coming very often to go to Panorama Bar at the time the first year from what I remember Bergheim wasn't open it was just Panorama Bar and then yeah, I was just coming very often and I was going often to leather bars and um more kind of cruisy leather bars and things. So yeah, Berlin was kinda playground.
2: Yeah. yeah. Okay. So but w- if you could co- compare like the parties you went to in London with mm. the Berlin ones, what differed them?
1: Well I think the thing that differed is gentrification. Mm-hmm. London really became a, you know, predominantly a financial capital. And when I first moved to London, you could live there if you had no job. You could live there if you were a banker. I didn't know any. Mm-hmm. So, you, you know, you had this whole spectrum of people and then all the different kind of cultures that live there. But with the, I would say, with it becoming a financial capital and the gentrification that's come with that, there's been an eradication of... Um, many people, many very interesting people who maybe slipped through the net of earning a lot of money, but, you know, very inspiring, artistic. Um, I I struggle to call it subculture because it's not really a subculture, but just, just there's an eradication of very many people who mm. can't live there. But at the time, when it was very mixed and when it was very free and liberal, the clubs represented that. And one of the things that fell away with the gentrification was we lost a lot of clubs and we lost a lot of gay bars, like a lot. There used to be like, in my, f- where I live in London, there was like four gay bars around and they all went within like the space of two years. It was... Um,
2: brutal. Yeah, it
1: was really brutal, like mm. to build flats or people, you know, making a lot of money from selling their properties. And so I guess the difference is still that Berlin feels less capitalistic. I mean, things are always changing Certainly in comparison to London It still feels less capitalistic And I hope the gentrification here Is slow I mean it's clearly not But I hope it's slowing down in some way Because a lot of the things that make a city interesting Can't thrive in, in very capitalistic environments
2: yeah, you were mentioning that four gay clubs had to close down. Mm. What are your like scares for Berlin?
1: Well, I mean, we already see it. We yeah. lo- we lose locations and we lose venues, and you know they become like slightly legendary. Um, I can think of Grieschmühle was an incredible location and venue for for parties, but there are many. Um, I guess I hope that Berlin still has some secrets to discover in terms of locations and bunkers and and places but i think that would be my concern or my fear if you ask me like that that we lose that rapidly um Mm. and I, i but you know i also feel like clubbing culture has a different status here it's not necessarily seen as just hedonism in London, it's very much seen as hedonism and it becomes the scapegoat for a denial of drug culture. Hmm. Um, let's blame the clubs. Let's not address the fact this that everyone does drugs or many, th- many, ma- many people do drugs.
2: I feel this here in Berlin too.
1: Yeah, yeah, it can happen. I mean, it's much easier to point the finger at clubs than it is to have that open, honest discussion because yeah. it's it's such a shift in society to have that discussion but until we have that discussion i i think there's going to be a lot of fallout there's going to be a lot of um casualties of of that yeah um, because it's it's the truth yeah. you can't avoid the truth forever so it needs to be said
2: definitely um well you yeah. have been mentioning that you've been a lot, that's mm. like, it's not, it's not only been your uh, work, yeah. but also like you've been really like, on all levels of yeah. it, it feels like <laughs> you've been experiencing it, like yeah. eating it full up, um, and today you're sober.
1: Yeah, well, I'm having a mate, but yeah, I'm sober.
2: <laughs> yeah, what happened? What
1: happened? Well, I guess, you know, I dove into rave culture, I dove into drug culture, and it was a great solution for me for many years. I would say that, without sounding too dramatic, I would say like to some degree it saved my life. The stress that I was under and I was pretty depressed as a teenager. You know, that was a solution. And I look at it now and I kind of, with my journey through drugs, um, it was the best solution I had at the time. And it was great. For many years, it was really great. And, you know, all the things that come with clubbing, there's uh, a real learning of empathy and connection, and you meet a lot of people that you wouldn't meet normally. And, you know, there's a lot of inner journey and work that can happen. But, you know, after like 15 years of it, I would guess, well, it's important to say that all of that great exploration there's a flip side to it, you know, there's like comedowns and um, there's negative side effects, of course. And I guess after 15 years of it, I had more negative side effects of it than enjoyment. And I really felt like I was going around in circles. So I felt like whatever it was that I had to learn from drug culture, I had learned it. And in if I wanted to stay in that, I would have to. To start doing different drugs
2: Aha, You know and and, and, yeah. and
1: and I kind of realised That I was starting to do different drugs And I didn't like it So I hit a few rock bottoms I hit a few like um, Rock bottoms Especially with alcohol you know, what,
2: what is a rock bottom? Well
1: for me it was kind of like In A negative You know a negative consequence Of my drinking That you know Did I want to continue having those or did I want to, was I willing to say, okay, that's as messy as it gets. So like things just like, you know, cutting myself, like falling off my bike, um, yeah. starting fights, believe it or not.
2: You? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah, because
1: you know, a lot of the impact of growing up in that environment was, I was really angry, yeah, true. you know, yes, I was no. really, really angry and I'm grateful to my anger mm. because, you know, if you're angry, you'll survive and if you're just faced with like grief and collapse or anger anger's the better one mm. so but you know i didn't know how to process that i didn't know how to deal with it i didn't know that might have been a good um lead into why i was doing yoga and things i was trying to kind of tame that angry tiger a bit
2: it feels like you had such a like voice of voice of awareness mm. can you say that
1: yeah Le- maybe I, you know, maybe I had a lucky, uh, a lucky elf looking after me, Irish leprechaun. I don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe it sounds a bit wiser in retrospect. You know, things make sense when you look back at them. But at the time, I was just kind of muddying my way through things. You know, I would get messy drunk towards the end, and I was a liability for people. It was it was heavy for my friends, and I remember phoning. Uh, a good friend of mine and saying, you know, and I really thought he was going to say, don't be ridiculous, you're overreacting. And I said, you know, I think I'm going to stop drinking and I think I'm going to have to get some help. And he said, you know, I think that's a really good idea. <laughs>
2: and no one had said anything before you discovered I mean, it people
1: did, you know, uh, people were saying, oh, you need to stop after two drinks. Oh, you need to know your limits. So I kind of internalized this idea that I was messy from a lack of self-control but what i think of addiction now is that you know that's just not possible i know that i am disciplined and focused and have uh you know i can set myself boundaries but when it comes to substances that goes out the window so it wasn't i kind of had internalized this idea that it was a character defect or something that it was A failing on my part to not know when to stop, but the reality was that was when I started, I couldn't stop.
2: Yeah, and isn't it? This is just an idea that may be stupid, but isn't it a little bit in the Irish blood?
1: Yeah, I mean it's there,
2: right? Like it's it's definitely there. Yeah,
1: yeah, it really is. I mean, it's very normalized in Irish culture. Mm -hmm. You know, to call yourself an alcoholic in...
2: Ah, really? To call yourself... Oh, if you
1: called yourself an alcoholic in Ireland, it would mean that, you know, you're living under a park bench. So, like, the the spectrum of what is normal drinking in Ireland is... It's a bit different, you know? Because it's such a part of culture and it's such a source of celebration. Mm. So it's kind of hard to... um, So it's kind of hard to... um, get a grasp on like is this great or is it not great or you know having hangovers and having the fear the day after drinking that's kind of normal and talked about and laughed at and um yeah
2: it's like part of life
1: it's kind of ingrained in the culture yeah yeah
2: but did you feel that your um party lifestyle changed when you got sober or could you handle both or like...
1: Well, I stopped drinking and then I thought, there's no way I'm going to stop drugs because I don't need to. And And then after about a year, I was thinking it was a year and a half, I realized that that was the same thing for me. Like I kind of ended up in this, not as quite a tough place, but I ended up in a similar place of feeling. Like I didn't feel good. This was the thing. You know, I would say that alcohol and drugs were like a solution to give me uh, peace inside, and then they just stopped working. Mm -hmm. And then it was like, what the fuck am I gonna do? How
2: long after you, or how long Uh, did it take until you realized they stopped working?
1: Well, fifteen years towards the end Ah, of that. And then you were like, I really persevered. I was trying to make it work. You know, so I really persevered, and then I and then I also gave up um, drugs, and I got a lot of help. I went to I still go to 12-step uh, meetings and 12-step recovery. And that helped me a lot and it opened me up to another community. And I learned a lot there. I still learn a lot there.
2: I, I hear a lot of people who are also confident and like, you know, I don't need... I think there is some kind of shame totally. with needing to get help. Totally. Did you? Re- how quickly did you realize you needed maybe some external help?
1: Well, I mean, I had the idea that... I had stopped many times, but I couldn't stay stopped. Mm. So I would stop and be like, I'm stopping for January. And I would do it. And my friends would be like, oh, you're so healthy. Or like, I'm detoxing. Yeah, 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 all of that. But the thing was, I would always start again. And I would always end up in the same feelings. And it kind of felt like Groundhog Day on some level. And also, I was not in a very peaceful place, so... I would go out socializing and think, oh, I'm going to have a great night and stuff. And then I would go out and I would just feel awful. And I would feel completely alone in a room full of people.
2: Was this when you were sober?
1: This was when I was getting high at the end. So towards the end of my drug journey, I just felt miserable. And then I stopped going out. And then I was just kind of like doing drugs at home quite a lot.
2: Ah, really? Alone?
1: Yeah, fun. Fun, Uh, (laughs) Yeah, fun. Yeah.
2: (laughs) <laughs> so fun. Was it fun? No, no. No, it
1: really wasn't fun at the end.
2: Like you were hunting the feeling.
1: I was like kind of, you know, I was looking in the same places for some kind of relief. I was looking in the only places I knew. You know, I didn't have. Wh- I think I would say that when I started to use drugs, on one level, they saved me. And on another level, a natural ability to handle my emotional self stopped. You know, so like something happened which really helped me and then something got stunted. So when I got sober, I didn't really have the emotional capacity to feel all my feelings somehow. It took a long time and recovery really helped me with that.
2: How? When did you or was it the moment where you realized?
1: I don't know. I just kind of always knew. Well, I had been getting external help um, from AA for a year. So when I started,
2: You were so, sounds like you then were not so... Um, judge you know towards yourself in that sense like Mm. if you if you you know the the feeling of like I don't need I don't need external help no I I never had that I never had that Mm. I mean
1: I've experienced that with I've met people who like have judgments about getting external help but yeah I've kind of learned I don't know I had the instinct that that would help me and I would try it at least and I think like Something that's great about recovery, I would say, is, you know, you can do a lot of self-work and you can do many different modalities of self-work, and I've done quite a lot of them on my journey to getting sober, Um, but something that can be a bit lacking is the reflection back to you, uh, someone reflecting stuff back to you, and recovery is very good for that because you're not kind of left on your own with your exploration, you are part of a community, and you kind of get this reflection back which helps get a perspective so you get to see things that maybe you wouldn't see yourself. Yeah. It kind of breaks denial around things.
2: It's yeah. very helpful. I love this talk. Thank you so much. <laughs> You're I have so to welcome. say uh, uh, it's not finished, yeah. but I just have to say thank you because mm. it's it really is so amazing to speak to a person like you who are who's so open and yeah. like uh, brave. Well you know I I try to be Firstly
1: I'm not a spokesperson For recovery or 12 step recovery In any way Um, And it's not for everyone And being sober is not for everyone You know many people are having great fun Doing whatever they do And I wouldn't change anything about my past Um, But the reason I speak about it Is As I get older One of my aims One of my intentions Is to be a good queer elder we lost a lot of generation we lost a generation through the AIDS crisis and I feel sometimes that queer culture doesn't have you know enough grandparents or even enough parents sometimes we're just like kids running around trying to figure it out and statistically at least the last time I checked uh, LGBTQI plus I know that doesn't cover everyone but uh, people are three times more likely to experience depression, three times more uh, likely to experience addiction, three times more likely to experience mental health challenge. And that's not because we're born that way. It's because of the impact of, let's call it homophobia, or growing up in a heteronormative world. Like, we have a long way to go to make it easier for queer kids. So, I mean, I speak about it for that reason, because I think people do suffer and um you know, I don't have all the answers in any way. My journey, I've learned some things, and if I can share them, I will share them. They're not for everyone. And I don't like insist that people do things the way I do. I really everyone has to figure these things out for themselves. But if I can speak about it, then I will then I will talk a little bit about it because I I feel like maybe it's not discussed enough in our culture. Very often we come together, in clubs and queer spaces, which, you know, I love and I still love. Um, But very often when we're in those environments, we're not really faced with any difficulties that that person might be going through on a Wednesday. You know, we're seeing them like in peak performance, peak experience mostly, sometimes not. But, you know, we don't really get um, a sense of what that person might be going through during the week or if they're having difficult times um, suicide is much more common in lgbtq plus people so if i have any um you know if i can share kind of the things that continue to work for me and it is an ongoing process i don't have all the answers then then i want to do that
2: do you feel so too that you have been like living along you know like a lot of different lives lives inside your one Sometimes,
1: sometimes I feel like, you know, I remember something from, you know, kind of squat parties in London or I had a thought the other day of like, wow, that's like a different world. I can't remember what it was, but I think, it. you know, I'm very grateful for where I am. Um. There were times with my mental health, you know, where it was pretty bad and, you know, I I didn't, I don't take it as like for granted to be here cuz i i i had a tough time at times
2: When was it
1: um you know um with my mental health with depression it's kind of brought me to uh, difficult places a few times in my life i would say in my teens and in my 30s was kind of tough um so you know i really i'm very grateful for every day and i also in part of my recovery is is about gratitude and i really try to Stay in the day, not think too far ahead, and and practice gratitude where I can, when I can, and and that for the most part, you know, if I can grasp just those things, of keep it in the day and try to be grateful, that um is kind of a nice way to to exist today, to be today. Yeah, I don't look back so much. I mean, now that we're talking about it, it's like, you know, it's kind of weird trying to piece all of that stuff together. Um, Some days I feel more clear about it than others, but I really, um, I'm kind of excited by what I'm doing now and like what the future is maybe and kind of the projects I have going on now that that's kind of what I focus on. I don't look back too much.
2: Yeah. Speaking of, have you ever been, because you've been coming, uh, you know, you've been staying so focused for a long time and you also reach so big goals are you, do you feel that you have, have you been a carri- career person?
1: I've always worked hard, like, even through the midst of all of the mess, I always worked, at whatever I was doing. So, like, you know, I would party with my friends, but I would always, like, if I worked in a cafe, I would always still went to work. Like, some, very rarely would I not make it to work. So I always, I think everyone in my family has that thing of, like, of working somehow, so I don't know if that's very careerist, but I, I kind of I think it would be the same if I brushed the street. Like I would try to do it well, and having the opportunity to DJ, excuse me, having the opportunity, <laughs> it's
2: a <the> club matter. <laughs> yeah, it's
1: the club matter. Having the opportunity to DJ, yeah, I want to give it my all. Mm. But you know, if for some reason that didn't work out, I would still be okay. Like it's not a desperate thing i don't like need it i really enjoy it and i and i want to enjoy it and i feel very privileged to do it but if not this then something else i'm really glad it's this but it's not like um i kind of hold it but i hold it kind of loosely yeah wow um
2: that what is it exactly i was gonna say that feels like it's something that you you know you don't want to suffocate something that you are like letting everything flow and fall into place and but
1: you know where that comes from it comes from when i was a yoga teacher i really wanted the djing thing to really Mm -hmm. kick off and the more i tried at the dj thing it, it was weird it was like i wasn't trying at the yoga thing at all And I really wanted the DJ thing, and I was trying at the DJ thing, and the yoga thing was growing. It was very weird, and I kind of realized that, yeah, if you grip too hard, you kind of don't allow any room for the magic, you know? You don't allow, because also the thing, you know, maybe it will slip away, but maybe what it's replaced by is better, and you don't allow for that either. So I guess I learned that. I guess I learned, like, yeah, like, hold on to it, but don't be desperate about it.
2: These are that questions before we go to the extra material. Uh, you'll say which one of the two you prefer. Okay. Can be none, can be both, but preferably okay. it's one of them. Uh, rooftop bar or smoky knipe?
1: Oh, neither. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I really Makes don't sense. like bars. I never like bars, even through all of my party days. I never like bars. I would go to bars with my friends, but only if we could go to a club. I was just into clubs.
2: And you are still into clubs, even when I you don't clubs. work yeah, there?
1: I really, yeah. I really do. I so mean, I go less now, because um, I tend to be in clubs every weekend with my work. So sometimes when I have a weekend off, I'd rather go into nature. But I'm... I mean, I still feel like that's my family. I should explore more clubs really that I don't play in, mm. uh but I don't as yet but i I do see a lot of club culture through my work, yeah, yeah,
2: do you have any clubs on your list
1: that I want to go to? yeah, I mean, there's a lot of like clubs in in Berlin that i I want to go to. I haven't been to Gagen in ages, mm-hmm. and you know Fabio's a sweetheart, and I used to go there when it first started, and um I haven't been to Pornceptual at all yet so I would like to check that out. And someone told me about a great party the you other day You can do two
2: flies in one there. Yeah. Agan and Pornceptual. Someone
1: told me about <laughs> a great party run by Irish people called fandango.
2: Oh okay.
1: Yeah, and someone told me like it's it's really good and it's out at one of the like uh at one of the like public beach bath areas. I forget the name of it. Like Plotzensee, maybe? It's out yeah, there. okay. And it's supposed to be really good. And there's also a party, I think, which has some Irish people behind it called Radiant Love. I
2: okay. don't know if it's still
1: going. I'd like to check that out. I think that's a great name for a party. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Also fun. Yeah. Great ideas for all the broader <laughs> listeners. Um, okay, Tulum or Tokyo?
1: Oh, I would say Tokyo. I've been to both. And um, I loved... Tulum. I have really good friends in Mexico. Love them to bits and we used to go to Tulum quite a bit. But yeah, I've been there a lot. Tokyo. Tokyo's great.
2: I really want to go to Tokyo. Yeah. Never been but yeah, That's it's great. it's coming sometime in my life, I hope. Okay. Uh, breaking Bad or Married at First Sight?
1: Oh, Breaking Bad. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of a hangover, maybe from my use and days, but I love drug movies.
2: And I love, (laughs) like,
1: drug series. And, like, I I love all of that. So,
2: yeah. All right. (laughs) And you watched this one, I bet. Yeah. Yeah, it was good. good. Yeah, it's really good. Okay, FKK or bathing suit?
1: Depends where, but I'm FKK. Yeah? Yeah.
2: You're in it. Love it. I'm also in it. I love it. Yeah. But I
1: can also, you know, depends where I I am, but I'm FKK. Why not?
2: Yeah, I think when you try the fruit, (laughs) ah, yeah, (laughs) it's the the opposite. (laughs) It's the opposite as as in the Bible. In the Bible, they try the fruit and they want to get dressed. (laughs) Anyways, okay, YouTube or Netflix? YouTube. YouTube, very modern, yeah. Mm,
1: Definitely YouTube.
2: What do you What do you look for? What do I
1: look for? I mean, I watch a lot of dog videos. (laughs) I'm really obsessed with dogs.
2: Like funny videos
1: sometimes yeah or um what else do I watch? I watch a lot. I mean I get a lot of music inspiration sometimes from there. I watch my friends DJ sets sometimes. I I like looking for documentaries. I really like biographies and documentaries. And don't always find them on YouTube, but I like that kind of genre if you like.
2: Mm, me too. Mm. Okay, early mornings or late evenings.
1: Well early mornings during the week I like to get up early I have a dog so she gets me up quite early but um yeah I like to get up early and then at weekends obviously I have very late nights
2: Yeah so yeah. you you don't have any problem with the uh, This is like my kind of uh, idea of if you can adjust to late evenings and early mornings, you don't have jet lag when you travel. I'm
1: really lucky Mm -hmm. because I think I've been doing it so long that I can kind of sleep on demand. So like if I have two hours, I can sleep for two hours. I don't wake up like jumping out of bed, but I do wake up and uh, yeah, I can I kind of used to it or I can sleep on airplanes. I'm very lucky. Yeah, um, I can sleep when needed.
2: Makes it easier. Definitely, at work. it mm-hmm.
1: really does. And I think I, you know, being sober in my job would be so much more difficult if I couldn't get my sleep in.
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Psychology or spirituality?
1: Ugh. Oh. Um, I don't really like the word spirituality. I kind of feel like it's a bit tainted somehow.
2: <laughs> I understand what you it's mean. It's a bit like. But l- what's another love. word for it though?
1: mm, I would say, um maybe like hippy shit hippy shit, but you know, like maybe, like, uh, yeah, I'm not sure what's another word for it for spirituality, maybe, like it's kind of like life hacks in a way, like kind of your like your inner world of like how. Ha- well, it's kind of like, no, it's not better. It's not better.
2: No, but I, uh, yeah, but more so... Um,
1: I had a really good word for it on Queerly Beloved, and I can't remember what it was, Melissa. You know, if you want to know someone's spirituality, I would say, you know, hang out with them and see how they treat you and how they treat other people rather than, you know, someone can say they're spiritual. I mean, religious people have say, you know people kind of buy into this idea if you do this if you do this then you're a good mm. person you can say you're spiritual but lots of spiritual people treat people like shit as well Like really? that's yeah. well and uh, not, not not especially but not any less than people who might say they're not spiritual yeah I think like if you want to know someone's spirituality like you know figure out like see how they treat you and see how they mm. treat other people rather than what they say
2: I go I go on
1: go, keep going keep yeah. going
2: uh, Tinder or meeting at the bar?
1: Well, I do really really not go say bar, yeah. but
2: meeting at the club.
1: Definitely meeting at the club. I mean, yeah, definitely meeting in person. Oopla. I'd rather like talk to people in reality. I've used both though. Tinder I've also used. I mean, it's good for, you know, getting a first date and then you can kind of see what the vibe's like. But definitely in person. Everyone we know these days has got a good picture. <laughs> it's like, you can always manage a good picture online.
2: But you cannot manage a good personality. Or just like, there's things that,
1: <laughs> there's things that, you know, are attractive, like how someone walks or what they smell like and all of those things. I you don't get any of that with um, Totally,
2: Yeah, there can be some, and this is, Something like learning by doing. Like if you haven't been on the market for a long time or haven't been (laughs) dating, then it's like you you don't really know what can be like your off-putting. You know, it doesn't have to be a weird smell for it to not feel 100% good or like, you know? It can just be like there was something and I don't know what. And you have to like discover it.
1: Yeah, I think... um, it's a bit like, smell is a bit like a first kiss. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of nature's way of telling you yes or no. Yeah. Go down this road or don't.
2: Yeah. yeah. I guess, yeah. <laughs> I guess someone doesn't it's really interesting good, with smell, like because people off. think they can hide it with the perfume, and na-na-na. You nah, cannot. Nah, nah, nah. Like, the, the smell, I- the, the perfume sits differently on all humans. Yeah, And we all like different smells, right?
1: Yeah, I have a friend who doesn't mm. wear any deodorant. Mm. And that's always like quite provocative in a club space. Because yeah. some people are like... And other people love it.
2: Oh, I don't love it.
1: You don't love it? No. But if you liked his pheromones, you might love it.
2: It's true. It's true. But sometimes at clubs, I can be like, shit, I have to move now because this person oh, is like, someone's wow. Yeah. And that's like, but well. Yeah. I mean, it, they, it's wha- how... Uh, how they, how nature, <laughs> you nature know, kind of they are not, they don't have to wear deodorant, obviously. They can, <sighs> but I don't know.
1: Yeah.
2: As long, I think also like old sweat is definitely a oh lot more off good. putting than if you are showered and like fresh and then you are new sweaty. Old new sweat sweaty is, is fine.
1: Is, is not good.
2: But it depends on how long your friend stays at the club.
1: What the fuck is this word? I'm so sorry.
2: <laughs> it's okay. You're not giving up. We're going to be so you. I know,
1: I, <laughs> tell me. But yeah. I have
2: a last one. Yes. And this one is really interesting because it's it's also re- related to your. We kind of like touch base on the, the childhood here. Okay. Religion or atheism?
1: Oh, that's tough, isn't it?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Somewhere in the middle, I guess. Because, you know, religion didn't really embrace me. And actually rejected me. Let's let's say, and but there are things about growing up. Somehow, there's some things that I think I got from because I'm a recovering Catholic. No disrespect to any Catholics, uh, but there are some things there that I think were good. Like maybe I got my discipline from there, and I got the idea of like, I don't know, like working for things and like, you know, um putting things off and kind of earning them. I think I probably got that from Catholicism.
2: And you don't think that affected you in a, in a negative way? I think way? there were lots of negatives. Yeah, but I, I mean, like, also the, the kind of, like, because the whole society is also built in some way on, like, you should earn your happiness,
1: you know? Yeah. You
2: earn a vacation, you should earn. And yeah, yeah, that can
1: be quite toxic. Yeah, but then there's also, you know, something good about, Working towards something and learning everything there is, you know, there's something about paying your dues, Mm. you know, like uh, for DJing, for example, you know, I've played in bars and I've played at parties where nobody came and I've played at parties where the equipment was terrible and you just have to make it work. And the... The thing about working hard kept me going somehow, because I always thought like, oh, this is just, this is shit, but it's part of the journey, like, just keep going. And I think there's something about earning your dues, which is, um, maybe comes from my upbringing a bit, but there's a shit lot of negatives as well.
2: We have now come to the part of the podcast where, if you're a Patreon, you'll get to listen to the extra material where we speak to Cormac about how he prepares his sets from start to finish. We also speak about inspiration and where he finds it, as well as him giving his best tips on record stores in Berlin. Go to patreon.com slash playfulmagazine. This was it for Playful Podcast this week, but please follow, subscribe and listen to our next episode. And if you want to have a say about future artists or even ask your own question to one of our guests, follow us on Instagram and make sure to add your question when we lift our coming guests. Thank you so much for joining and see you next week.
3: Hold up.